Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Mirabai Bush is an OG in the uh, in the meditative sense. Back in the 60s and 70s, there there was this whole group of young Americans who went overseas to Asia and learned at the feet of various contemplative masters. Joseph Goldstein, my meditation teacher, Sharon Salzberg, um, Mark Epstein, lots of people who have been on this show were part of that group. And Mirabai Bush was also part of that group. And a lot of these people came home and started teaching. And Mirabai did that and uh, is now an amazing teacher uh, who works in particular with organizations, including organizations in higher education, law, business, journalism, the environment, biotech, science, government, philanthropy, teaching, meditation, and related practices to make these people function uh, with uh, more mindfulness, more compassion, more productivity. She really has is at the tip of the spear of this work of bringing meditation into into a professional uh, context. She's also written a new book along with uh, Ram Das, the who was also part of this uh, group of this vanguard of Americans that showed up in Asia in the sixties and seventies and and learned how to meditate. So she and Ram Das uh, have written a book called Walking Each Other Home, which is about something that pretty much nobody wants to talk about, which is death. And they're reframing death in a really interesting way as as the ultimate spiritual practice. We're all afraid of it. Well, I could maybe I'll just speak for myself. I'm afraid of it. I think many people are afraid of it. But their concept is what if what if you could approach it with curiosity? And as they say, with love, which I think is uh, a fascinating way to look at it. So there's a lot to talk about uh, with Mirabai, about her personal story, about mindfulness in the workplace and all of the some of the controversies that come along with that. We also talk about how Me Too has affected the the meditation movement. And then, of course, a lot about uh, this really thorny, but I think (laughs) immeasurably profound topic of death, which again, we seem to want to avoid, but I think is, is that's not the right move. And it's oddly enlivening, uh, to, to face directly. So before we get to Mirabai, just a few uh, notes, uh, as I like to do of, of business. Um, one is, uh, just an unmitigated bit of bragging. Uh, but the, my, Friends and colleagues at the Ten Percent Happier, we just uh, company. We just got a great honor from our friends at Apple. Uh, the folks in the Apple App Store have given us the designation of Editor's Choice among the meditation apps, and that's a pretty rare and special honor. So we're really psyched about that, and I want to congratulate the phenomenal, intelligent, and cool, and sadly for me, all younger than me folks at the 10% Happier app for the incredible work that you all do. So that uh, Apple recognizing that is no small deal. Also, two new meditations up in the uh, uh, in the app. One is from Diana Winston. It's called New Morning. It's about uh, how to get your day started. Another with Joseph Goldstein called It's Just a Mind State, and that's a really good one. 
think that's all the business. We're going to do the voicemails at the back of the show, as we now do. So let's get to Mirabai. Not much more to say about her uh, other than I've already said um, or or that she can't say better. Uh, so let's just get directly to it. Here's Mirabai Bush. Nice to see you. Ask me anything. <laughs> all right. I'll ask you anything. You may wish you didn't say that. No. Actually, um, knowing you, I only know you a little bit, yeah. but uh, knowing you as I do, I suspect uh, it's actually totally fine for me to ask you anything. It is. <laughs> well, let me ask you this. How did you get into the meditation game in the first place? Good question. Um, I'll try to make it a short answer. No, don't. This is a podcast. You, you, oh, okay, you, you, great. This podcasts are by definition a rabbit hole. So let's go right. down and okay. <laughs> well, back in nineteen, I was in graduate school from nineteen um, sixty-seven to seventy. Studying what? Studying English literature, um, American literature then, and. Um, but those were, as you probably know, like wild years on campuses. And I was very involved in civil rights and the anti-war movement. And it became – I was also teaching, uh, teaching freshman English. And it became impossible to be there, really. We um, uh, There was violence all over the place. You know, and police – the police were actually – Came, were running the campus by the end of uh, the time I was there. Which campus? It was uh, SUNY Buffalo. So, and but more than that, it was the world seemed to be falling apart. Basically, we and we couldn't. Um, you know, all the men I knew were all finding one way or another to get out of the draft. I used to. Uh, we were close to Canada. My job was to drive people. Smuggle people across the border. Um, we, I just felt like there had to be a way of living on this planet that was saner and and made more sense and w- had more meaning than what we were going through then. That you know, we'd been, well, well, Martin Luther King had been killed and Bobby Kennedy was killed. You know, they just celebrated the 50th anniversary. Not celebrated, but commemorated. Um, it was it was a really hard time. So um, with my then partner, who I later married, um, we decided to just journey and see what we could find. And we started in Europe and... Um, we took one of those buses. I don't know if you've ever heard about them. They were they were called the Green Turtle. And they're just, it's the longest bus ride in the world from De- from London to Delhi, um, two months. And uh, on this, you know, broken down old. A lot of people were doing that at that time. The bus actually did keep breaking down, so we would stay. We stayed in Tehran for two weeks. This was a great one. Tehran, then. <laughs> the the, the um, Shah was still in power, um, and uh, we were, happened to be there on Thanksgiving. And because we were American, somebody knew we were there. We were invited to the American Petroleum Club in Tehran for Thanksgiving dinner. Um, it was definitely a different time. We came through the former Yugoslavia, Turkey, Iran. Afghanistan, Pakistan, and into India. Places and you could never go. Every on a bus right place now. Yeah. was completely peaceful. Wow. Some of them because there were dictators, you know, but, but there was no war going on at all. All, and people took us into their homes and their mosques and their churches. And it was, 
it was, I mean, for somebody who was looking for different ways of being, it was really an amazing trip. But then I got to India, and um, I actually had never really thought much about India growing up, but I felt at home from the minute I arrived, which was kind of strange because it was totally on the other side of the world, and everything was different. Um, But Actually, the first day I was in Delhi, you'll appreciate this, I met Sharon Salzberg on the street. And she had been to the same school I'd been. She was an undergraduate. I was a PhD student. And uh, we didn't know each other there, but we had heard of each other. And uh, so we met on the street, and and she told me that for the first time ever, um, a Burmese Buddhist teacher was teaching a retreat for Westerners. And um, that's what we were called there. And uh, why, why, why not go? And at that point, it was a little bit like, you know, trying the kind of local thing. You know, it was like wine and cheese in Paris, you know. <laughs> it's like, why not? <laughs> so we, a couple of days later, we went to Bagaya, where the Buddha had been enlightened, and we moved into the Burmese Vihara, and, uh, which translates as house of stillness. And Sharon and I were, well, we, we can't call it roommates but um, because there weren't rooms, but we, <laughs> we slept on the floor and we separated our spaces by hanging up saris, you know, on, on string. And um, there we were. And I had never done anything like meditation before, you know, as a literature student. And um, I'd grown up in New York, you know, <laughs> meditation in new york city yeah new york city and uh riverdale and then i we we sat from i think five or six in the morning till nine or ten at night what was the teacher again goenka goenka okay famous yeah and of course it was amazing and it really i mean i began to see things in a way i had never before. I began to see my own mind in ways that I didn't even think was possible before. And along with teaching the basic insight meditation practices, he also taught us loving kindness. And the combination, we, it was 10 days, the first course. And that combination for me was, um, I just felt so much more at home on the planet when I finished that first course. I just felt like it was, you know, it was right to be here. And I could, I didn't know what I was going to do next, but I I felt a kind of radical self-confidence about the rightness of being alive. That was, that, and then... That's a great phrase. Huh. I never used it before. <laughs> it's you. <laughs> I really like that a lot. A radical... Self-confidence about the rightness of being alive. <laughs> that That's like the subtitle for your next book. <laughs> that might not have come after entirely after the first 10 days, but what happened was we all we all loved it. Now, I mean, probably a few people left, but there were, and I don't remember, 50, 75 of us there. And um, so Sharon Salzberg was there and Joseph Goldstein. And, um, Who went on to become yeah, you know, legends in the trade. Uh, Wes Nisker, who is at Spirit Rock in California, and Ramdas was there, and that's where I met him. Okay, so can you just Ramdas is very famous, but some people may not know. Yeah, so. uh, Ramdas was 
in the 60s, Ramdas was a professor of psychology at Harvard, and he began to explore consciousness with Tim Leary through psychedelics, and Harvard asked him to leave. And he did, and but but that was a time when many people were exploring psychedelics, and were confused. There was no, there was no real guidance. Uh, so, um, he also, in in some of the same way that I did, went to Asia looking for. He he had taken. A, he and Tim had taken so many psychedelics, and there was always this. Although they, you know, learned so much from it, there was always this kind of going up and coming down aspect. And I thought, there's got to be a way in which we can incorporate this into our being and just be that person without always taking drugs. So um, Ramdas went to India, and there he met. This was his trip, his first trip. And I met him on a second. But um, there he met a great Indian saint named Neem Karoli Baba. And he stayed with him for quite a while. And there he learned meditation and yoga. and But mainly he learned, well, he came back um, and he wrote, he gave lectures in New York, and those lectures were turned into a book called Be Here Now, which sold two million copies because, no, it was the only thing. It's hard to imagine now. There was like a billion spiritual books now. There was nothing. And um, Ram Dass wrote Be Here Now, and everybody read it. So, so when you met him on that second trip, was he already kind of a rock star? It hadn't come out yet. Ah. It came out while we were there. When we got back the second time, 1972, you couldn't walk down the street with him in New York or any major city. He was just like people would just like come running. It was wild. He'd give a he'd give a talk. We'd put a, a handwritten note up on a, a flagpole or you know a, whatever in the street, you know. Um, electric pole, <laughs> and uh, just a thousand people would show up. It was crazy, and um, but people were desperate for some help. Many people were, you know, seeing things in a different way, having glimpses of of consciousness that they didn't understand but knew was important, and uh, they were, you know, just like desperate for some guidance. And Ramdas was the first of what became many teachers, of course, to offer that, yeah. So what happened in your life? So you, you go do this, so almost serendipitously, you end up on a retreat with, with the future rock mm-hmm. stars of meditation <laughs> all together. And what, 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 what did it do the, to the trajectory of your life? Well, I, I, I thought I was going to stay in India for two weeks. I stayed for two years. And I then, you know, I learned yoga with some teachers. And then I stayed with Ram Dass's teacher, Neem Karoli Baba, for most of that time. Now, he was a Hindu teacher. He was a Hindu, but he didn't teach Hinduism. He did not, he never encouraged any of us to become Hindus. Um, but uh, he taught, well, he famously said, sub ek, or it's all one. And he really taught from that place. He was um, outside categories. So I stayed with him. Now I came back thinking, I'd go back again soon, but he died the following year. So there weren't very many Westerners who were ever with him. But um, 
Danny Goldman, who maybe you know, was there. I know there. quite well. He's yeah, been on the show many times. Thought. Yeah, um, he was there. There were it, it was an extraordinary group of people who happened to be there, uh, and we've all stayed close since then and interacted with each other in all these ways. Well, they're often referred to as the Jew booths. Yes, now, that's you right. fit that. Ter- I do not. Yeah. I was in. You got the boo down. Well, maybe even not, maybe you don't have the boo down. I, then. I was in Catholic school from preschool through Georgetown graduate school. (laughs) But it turns out that most of my friends are are Jew boos. (laughs) Um, Yeah, Ram Dass. (laughs) So, yeah, we we all came back and we – a group of us, including Danny and uh, Mark Epstein was around and – who wrote the? Who really was the first to integrate it into psychiatry, and um, and Richie Davidson, who was the first to really do neuroscience research, and Cliff Sarin, who's also doing that work out at Davis. Um, we lived in the home of David McClellan, who at the time was the head of social psychology at Harvard. So he, this is back in the States. We came back, and we were in Cambridge. And David had been the one to fire Ram Dass, but, <laughs> but he had had to do it because he was head of the department. But they remained friends. And then David went to India. So the whole group of us lived there, and that was like – that became the – that was like the base camp for the founding of Insight Meditation Society in Barrie. Barrie, Massachusetts. Yeah, 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 where Joseph and Sharon have – taught all these years. Um, and many things happened. But I had had, in this unfolding, I had had a baby. And um, so I couldn't, in those years, the idea of meditation and babies <laughs> did not go together. I'm sure you can appreciate that with a three-year-old. Yeah, I don't see how in these years they would go together. My son is the least meditative dude in the world. But, well, I mean, like later on, Thich Nhat Hanh started having retreats where there would be children. They wouldn't be in the meditation hall, but they'd be doing the child version of drawing flowers and putting love in each petal, you know. Gotcha. Yeah. (laughs) But in those years, and everybody, you know, most people at that time had gone to India like right after college or, or younger. Everybody was pretty young. I had been... I'd already been married and divorced and went back to graduate school, so I was a little older than everybody. So I had this child <laughs> who was fabulous. And um, so my then husband and I started a business because we wanted to integrate meditative practices and awareness values into a business setting. And this was before any of the uh, even places like Ben and Jerry's and the body shop and you know but it did we it was called illuminations and oh you'll appreciate it got it was crazy we we didn't know anything about business and we were silk screening um we were silk screening mandalas from all the different traditions on on plastic with a sticky back okay and they went on windows and it turned out um Dave McClellan, who was the father of motivation psychology, said that it was the affiliative need of people. People had just started, like, you know, becoming Buddhists or Sufis or, you know, they'd left their root religions and they were exploring all these things. And so these were symbols from those traditions. There was no other spiritual paraphernalia at the time. (laughs) And so it was 
crazy. It just took off. And like everybody had one. And then we made, we still screen rainbows as the universal symbol of peace and harmony. And I mean, we sold millions of them. And then so what I remembered was then we made stickers of all these things. And and uh, then gir- girls started collecting stickers, and like 11-year-old girls. And um, so one night, Dan Rather ended the 7 o'clock news with us as his end cap because it, stickers had become this <laughs> big thing. But what the part I was always really most interested in was the integration of these practices and, and perspectives into the workplace. And... It was very interesting, and we really learned a lot. And it ended in the 80s, early 80s, I think. Why? Because it sounds like it was going well. Because, um, well, different reasons. But um, one was that was at the time when American, the bigger companies started noticing that we were selling a lot of stuff. And so they wanted to sell a lot of stuff, too. And... uh, they, but it was just when people were starting to manufacture in China, and they were they, they came out with whole lines that they spent like a tenth of a cent where we were, we were printing in Boston, and in, it was pretty amazing. This is the gift business by that time. Um, in one season, it, it just the bottom fell out, and we'd been such such good. We were trying to create a wakened company, so we distributed all the profits at the end of the year to the employees because you remember that Mark said that, after all, they did the work, right? But then when it came time to survive a difficult time, because we'd never had a difficult time, we didn't really have enough um, retained earnings. Uh, yeah. So what does that say about the possibility for awakened businesses? Oh, there are – you can run an awakened business. You just have to be a little more prudent than we were. <laughs> <laughs> well, say more about that because I think that this is – you know, we many many of us work. Yes. <laughs> uh, and may not feel we work in an awakened environment. Uh, how – and I know you've done – you've worked with Google and Yeah. Well, others. that's really – that was what allowed me to just walk into Google and feel at home right away and able to do that work on Search Inside Yourself. Search Inside Yourself is their program. Yes, yeah. yeah. It's the most popular program ever off course, ever offered at Google. And it's the same basic practices of, you know, meditation and a lot of more compassion and kindness practices than some other systems have because they felt like the engineers needed that. Stay tuned. More of our conversation is on the way after The Taste the Mediterranean sales event is going on now through March 19th at Whole Foods Market. It's a store-wide event packed with flavor. My family and I are regulars at Whole Foods Market. We've got one, I think, less than a mile and a half away from our house. This Taste the Mediterranean thing sounds pretty cool. Uh, They've got Mediterranean-inspired flavors. You can save on Parmigiano-Reggiano, charcuterie, and ground lamb. They've got delectable seafood choices. You can save on whole branzini and sustainable wild-caught sockeye salmon, which is a regular feature at our dinners in this house. My son loves that salmon from Whole Foods. And I'd be remiss if I didn't point out all of the uh, 365 by Whole Foods Market products. Stock up on wallet-happy Mediterranean essentials like feta cheese crumbles, 
whole wheat, pita pockets, and more. I am constantly uh, consuming these 365 products, including the, the raw cashews, which I snack on all the time. We love the 365 sea salt and pepper. Uh, we love their sushi rice. You get the picture. Go check it out. Taste the Mediterranean now at Whole Foods Market. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You'll always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases and next listen recommendations for every type of thriller listener. The selection over on Audible when it comes to true crime, mystery, and thriller is um, quite extensive. They've got John Grisham, tons of stuff by Stephen King, David Baldacci. My favorite that I've checked out recently in the crime fiction genre is called Age of Vice. It's by Deepti Kapoor. It came out uh, not long ago. Not only is it thrilling and uh, very, very plotty, but it's also written incredibly well. It's truly literature. Deepti Kapoor is a, a force of nature as a writer. Age of Vice, it takes you into the uh, underworld in New Delhi in India. I absolutely love that one. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. It comes to hiring, you don't have time to waste. You need help getting to your short list of qualified candidates fast. That's why you need Indeed.com. Get started today at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. You said ask me anything, so I'm going to ask you a tricky okay. question. Yeah. So a former guest on this podcast, the founder of Search Inside Yourself, yes. Meng, mm-hmm. Uh, recently I had to step down because mm-hmm. there were some Me Too complaints against yes. him. I don't know the yeah. details. Um, what what has that done to the organization? To Google or to Silly? To search inside yourself. Yeah, well, silly. within Google, it's, it's a... He had already you know, left Google. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, in um, Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute, we called it, which because the acronym is Silly, because at Google, everybody likes to sort of play around, you know, as part of the, the culture. Be playful. Um, uh, he was chairman of the board there, although this, w- what happened, happened while he was at Google. And, you know, I, it's, it's made me think a lot about kind of cultures in collision. Like, over the years, we watched a number of teachers come from uh, all over Asia to this country to teach people. And uh, even these teachers who had had, you know, the best training, um, quote, knew better, you know, many of them got involved in what we now call a Me Too way. And I I felt like um, Meng having, oh, I don't really know, but, you know, I, I just met with a whole group of young Chinese entrepreneurs. The single fa- single child family has been a very. It's put so much pressure on 
the child and who then becomes a grown-up to perform and to be uh, successful. And um, Meng was, you know, he did really well in school and then he got to Google and he was a really smart engineer and did great things there. And then we developed Search Inside Yourself and it started becoming this, like, very cool thing that everybody wanted to be part of. Not everyone, but many people wanted to be part of. And what the reason Search Inside Yourself was successful at Google was that what we what we kind of figured out was that especially those early employees now it's different you know now they have more business people involved and so on but in the beginning they were mostly all really young really smart really competitive and had been in front of their screens their whole lives and so what they what they needed what they weren't good at was self-awareness and awareness of others and that's why we built in so much uh, some compassion practice and loving kindness and mindful listening and things like that because um, they were great at algorithms. Once they had to start working in teams, they didn't have those skills as much. Uh, and I think that it it all happened so fast. And I mean, I don't know that this is true, but I feel like Meng and probably probably others you know got it was confusing there were there were lots there weren't so many women at google and some of the coolest ones wanted to be part of search inside yourself and were around and um i think men he didn't really know how to quite how to handle all that um that i haven't said that to him and I don't know that that's I mean I've talked to him but not like that but I because I think it's bigger than that um, I think that um, it's been it's been a hard adjustment for uh, a lot of a lot of young people in Silicon Valley who have all this has happened and of course they all, they all have you know I mean all those original engineers have so much money they never have to work again you know and it just I think it's been really confusing but what what I found you know and I I've texted with him about it but we haven't had a real conversation yeah. and um but, but I guess stepping away from the details of the case I just found it to be a little disheartening because one would imagine that bringing mindfulness and compassion into the workplace would would have a salutary effect on Sexual harassment, yeah, and and, it, and I think it does, right? But 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 this is a this is a case that would raise questions about that. Of course, of course, it does. And I mean, I remember after we'd all been back here and founded centers and been meditating for I think thirty years it was, and I remember I was at Zen Mountain Monastery teaching something, and someone like cautiously raised his hand and he said, "I I just want to ask you something." How how could somebody be meditating for 30 years and not be very compassionate? Something had happened, obviously. You know, <laughs> you know we're pretty – I mean, I, I say that sometimes like as a throwaway line, you know, how, how could she be meditating all this time and act like that? But in fact, <laughs> we're complicated and um and we're really good at um diluting ourselves and 
and it takes a long time to see everything that we're attached to in ways in which we're behaving unconsciously. I mean, a long time. Ramdas and I talk about it in the book. You know, we've been doing it for so long, and still things arise. You know, you don't have perfect behavior. So let's talk about the book, since you've very skillfully brought <laughs> us there. What is this new book? Okay, it's called Walking Each Other Home. And then the subtitle is Conversations on Loving and Dying. And How did it come about? It came about because we noticed that the boomers were getting older. <laughs> and, and Ram does notice that he didn't have too much time left. And that we noticed that, you know, more people were talking about dying. And, and of course, we're only too aware of the ways in which, as a culture, we don't talk about it. And so the fir- at first I thought... We'd take everything uh, Ramdas had written already, and he started writing about it and be here now, and uh, you know, kind of pull it together. And this would be like the words of Ramdas on on uh, dying. But well, he said, "No, I want to do it together." Okay, so I said, "Okay, I'll write an introduction and uh, about you and me and this world, and um, and then we'll put all your stuff together." And um, he, so we did, I remember. Uh, and then Ramdas said, when I went to see him again, he said, uh, I like your part better than my part. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, of course, he said it and read it so many times. He's tired of it. So, um, so then, and Ramdas, uh, 20 years ago, had a, ma- a massive stroke. And um, from that, he's recovered amazingly. I mean, he's paralyzed on one side and in a wheelchair, but uh, his mind is more clear than ever. And, I mean, his heartful presence is more there than ever. But he has aphasia, and, and with aphasia, it doesn't affect your thinking brain, but it affects the way in which you're able to express what you're thinking. So you you know the word you, you know there's a word you're trying to express and you just can't get the word. Yes. So he, sometimes he talks about it as like a closet of costumes or, or and that or clothing and that he's got the idea and then he he goes into the into the closet to decide what to wear, you know, what, how to say it. And sometimes it takes a long time. So that keeps him from really doing a lot of lecturing, and he can't like write in paragraphs like he used to. So, but he's still learning, and he's still having new insights that are amazing. And so, most of that comes out in conversation with close friends. And so, we thought maybe we could try that, and it just from the first day it just flowed. It was great. So that's what it is. It's conversations between us and it's in my voice. It's kind of written like a memoir, a memoir of visiting Ramdas and talking about dying. And then we integrate some of his uh, past writing, I'll say. Before we talked about that subject, I went back and read this passage, you know, and then dropped that in that way. And um, yeah, it worked beautifully. And we so we treated everything from like our fear all of our fear of dying to all the way to the very practical part of how 
we went through it with him, how he wants to die, you know, and, and how where he wants his ashes to go, and does he want music as he's dying. We went through all, like, practical things that are actually really good for older people to do before they die. Well, you could argue that it's actually maybe even good for people who aren't that old. Yeah. I mean, it's really good for people who aren't that old to think about it and um, and talk about it and look at, you know, look at the places where we are, like, holding on. Because the easier you become with it, the the more present you are right now. And, and Ram just makes a connection between presence and openness and lack of fear and loving that in creating that space you allow love to arise and then all your relationships become more loving all right that sounds great but how do you do that there are practices turns out (laughs) first of all you bring it into awareness into everyday awareness so that um you death bring death into everyday. yes yeah there's a great little app called we croak. The founder has been on oh, this podcast. No kidding. Yes. <laughs> I have it on my phone. Oh, that's I use it great. all the time. I really want to send him a book. It is. It's great. So, And he's picked up on you know, a, a, a practice from one tradition, or I think Burmese. But anyhow, that you should bring death into your awareness five times a day. And so there are five phrases or you know quotes from people about death just to i mean that works you can tell yourself i'm going to just every day for a minute or so i'm going to just think about it but also there are practices about, about letting go which you know about um uh, the basic insight practices of seeing training to see what is arising in your mind and so if you start thinking about death or it happens that someone you love has just died or is going to die or is diagnosed with something terminal or, you know, all the way to we talk about pets dying, the ways that death comes in to our lives or even death at a distance of people in other parts of the world. But death is, is there. And then you sit with it and see what arises in your own mind about that and what fears you have what which then reveals like what you're holding on to in this life um and and then ways in which you can let go the attachment now, you know it's usually not for everybody but it's usually the people you love you know and so it's not that you're going to let them go out of your life but that you let go that clinging and need for them to be a certain way or for you to be there with them in a certain way and that like opens up a kind of space for to be more loving and to know to just kind of relax into the reality that we are all going to die why would that make you more loving because if you because think about a time when you've been like really afraid there's a there is that kind of it's closed and tight you know, and, and, and uh, self-centered. Yes, and it, 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 for good reason. I mean, you know, to d- defend yourself from whatever you're afraid of. But in as much as you're afraid, there's, there's like no space there to be open and loving towards somebody else. So that's how they're related. Most of us 
don't think about death much, but yeah. do you think the fear of death subconsciously drives us in ways? Absolutely. How? Absolutely. I think it's related to all the other fears. I mean, finally, why do we fear anything that we fear? You know, it finally gets down to that we don't want to die. <laughs> I mean, if you keep if you keep stripping away um, what it is, and some people I think say, "Well, I'm not afraid of death, but I I just I'm afraid it'll be painful at the end." And um, that's different. That is really, you know, especially now we talk about pain and pain management and so on and that that for most people now there isn't a lot of pain around dying because. They're managing it. Yeah, I mean, I uh, I volunteer in a hospice, and I've talked about this before. Oh, on the you podcast. do. Yeah. Uh, um, wow. The 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 I see people in, in some pain, but uh, they do a very good job of managing it, and uh, it's I find that comforting. I, I wouldn't say that I'm not afraid of death anymore. <laughs> yeah. Well, do you see fear in the people you're with there? Uh, it's interesting. Um, some people, at least one one case in particular, this woman who I was sitting with uh, was very scared. They couldn't keep her in the bed. She had – there's a name for this condition. She was just completely yeah, agitated and anxious and that she kept trying to get up and she was just mm. always really – nervous and you know just ask me to f- shift her position or sit, change where I'm sitting and so that was very tough yeah um, but then others yeah I remember sitting with this guy and he said he started to and I don't think any spiritual background it was interesting when he said something that would fit right in with a Buddhist teacher that as he got older he started to feel something part of something larger you it's know nice. that it's just a system yeah yeah know? well I think that's the way it's supposed to work you know <laughs> doesn't always, you know. Yeah, and and you know, there's this one guy who I uh, I've been there. I've been there for a couple of years, and uh, and uh, I probably would if I was part of a program, Zen hospice training program, and it only went for nine months, and oh. I probably would have ended it after nine months. But there's this one guy in there, Ronnie, who I don't think is going to die, um, and he's awesome, and we've become very close, and so. I go back mainly just to hang out with him, and we talk a lot about. Well, often we just play video games, but but we we talk and as well, and yeah, he doesn't express a lot of fear about it. You know, he he has chronic shortness of breath, and that's scary. Yeah, but he's kind of. It's funny. He's got a new neighbor who is a younger guy in his fifties, and uh, he has got prostate cancer, and he's just mad. I think that that. Had he gone to the doctor earlier, it would have been oh, caught yeah. and it would have been managed. And he's he's definitely earlier in the stages of grief. He hasn't gotten yeah. to acceptance, and so it's interesting to talk to him. And in the two, uh, the three of us. Well, since yesterday, the three of us were hanging out together, and yeah, it's interesting. Ronnie is much more relaxed than this guy, the other, the new guy whose name I don't want to name him because yeah. he I, I haven't talked about him publicly before. But but he was much more agitated. So I, I see this spectrum. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we talk about regrets and how, yeah, regrets make it really difficult in, in the end times. <laughs> um, and so it's obvious that it's good, good to let go of regrets. I mean, which is not to say that we all couldn't have done some things better, but we didn't. So like kind of accepting that and then 
you know, then if there's something to be done, apologies or forgiveness or whatever, that you do that. But to let go of it as something you, like, deeply regret, like not taking care of yourself, um, it's really good practice to go through that and let go of that whenever you can because it does make it. I watch people with regrets try to die and it was really, not try to die, but die. And it was really hard. But but hospice work, one of the things that when <laughs> when I turned 70, I thought, well, now I guess I'm going to somehow be closer to knowing about dying, you know? <laughs> but it doesn't happen that way, it, you know? And I so one of our questions was, how do we learn about dying in a culture which, which really celebrates not just life but young life? And um, uh, where dying is largely hidden away, not happening at home so much. Um, so Ram just has done a lot of hospice work too. And he started in the 80s during the AIDS epidemic. And he actually... It was so fun writing this book because you know, I've known him all these years, and I thought I knew every single thing about him, but um, he he's gay. I don't know if you knew that. But, I never knew that. Uh-huh, yeah. But um, he said that, but, but he grew up, so he's 87 now, so he grew up in the 30s and 40s and 50s, you know, when... What's his What's his given name? Richard Richard Alpert. Alpert. So yes. he grew up in a. His father was a wealthy industrialist. Yeah, Jewish his, guy in Boston. Yes, yeah, very upwardly mobile. President of the um, New York New Haven Railroad. Right. And um, there's a great and, documentary about him called Fierce Grace. Oh, it's which, really good. Yeah. And then there's a newer documentary on Netflix. Called Going home. Yeah. Yeah. That and that's set at just the time the book is, and so it's really sweet to see. I, short and lovely. But, yeah, so he, he grew up in that family. I mean, he became a full professor of psychology at Harvard, but his family, his mother didn't really, you know, he wasn't a doctor and he wasn't a lawyer. So as his brothers were uh, lawyers and business people, and so she never, she always thought psychology was a little soft, you know. <laughs> so he, in growing up, and he was in prep school, and the boys were brutal to him. And... um he always he struggled with with that in ways that is different now. And it's not all fine, but it's different. And um, but what he said when we were writing the book was that how he got into he talks about being with people who are dying, doing hospice work or other or being with family um, or friends is one of the ways in which we really get more familiar with dying, is being with people who are dying. How did he um, get so into it? In the 80s, someone asked him to sit with someone who was dying of AIDS. And he he did because, I mean, he, he was already out as gay and he was a spiritual teacher, so he did. And then he sat with quite a few people who had AIDS, and uh, as you know, many people died during that time. And um, he said, he said, I was so drawn to them. You know, I wanted to get close to them because it was so intimate. And he said, they were, um, they were dying. They weren't afraid of being gay. 
but they were afraid of dying. Mm-hmm. I wasn't afraid of dying, but I was pretty nervous about being gay. <laughs> so, so he said, for me, it was a real turning point in doing that work with AIDS. But So he'd never said that to me before, so I thought it was interesting. But um, he talks in the book about, we talk together about people we've known who we've been with while they died and, and what you learn from that. When he talks about, as a teaching for people who are doing that with one person or many, about being a loving rock. Hmm. that you're there if if you don't have any medical responsibilities or other responsibilities you're just there sitting not judging not trying to tell them what it's going to be like after they die not uh just being there being loving being maybe holding hands or whatever's being called for in the moment. Maybe it's watching a video game, you know. But just being there so that the dying person knows it's all okay and I'm being held by love and that's all I need to know now. Uh, that that's res- I resonate with that for sure. I bet. So are, what about you? Are you afraid of death still uh, well, after I'm having s- written this book? Well, I'm so much less. I, I wasn't. I didn't think I was desperately afraid before because, you know, I've done lots of practice around it and so on. But I – and I was with my sister who died two years ago, and I went through a lot of changes around it then. So I thought it was pretty cool. But having these conversations for a long time – well, it took us about two years to write the book. But he was in Maui, and I was in Massachusetts, and I'd go back and forth and – We'd renew the conversation. But I found that just talking about it and, you know, reading about it some, but mainly just these conversations made it, the process of thinking and talking about it, just things just fell away. And I feel now, I don't know what will come up when it happens. I could have all kinds of fears that are totally repressed that I haven't even glimpsed. But I feel pretty easy about it now. And and I'm hoping that that this book, which is is a conversation and it from people who've read it so far have told me that it kind of draws you into the conversation. It's, we set this, you know, it's as if you're in the room. As I said, it's written in a memoir style. So um, that it'll help people um, get familiar in a different way the sections are each like about two pages each and it's beautifully illustrated so it's as easy a read as it could be for the subject (laughs) what would you say to I mean uh, what would you say to younger people about about the importance of thinking about death because I don't think people who aren't more sort of by the um, uh, actuarial charts more proximal to the end. Yeah. Uh, think yeah. about this, nor do I think most people who are younger think about the the, um, the the need for it. Yeah. Yes. And Ramdas had a caregiver who is in his early twenties, and we brought him into the conversation, and and some other younger people also. And I remembered that there was a time some years ago, 
and I was Bill Moyers did a series uh, called um, oh it was called I thought it was a terrible title for dying on our own terms. I said this is the one thing that you, not on your own terms, <laughs> <laughs> but it was really more about like you know patient. Uh, what's that movement called? Like uh, control, you know, of how you're going to die. Patient's right. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so I was working um, with his production crew and with Frank Ostaseski. You probably know him. Uh, he wrote a book. Yeah. It's called The Five Invitations. He's done – he ran the Zen Hospice in San Francisco for years. Gotcha. And um, so uh, we were doing some work with the production crew because we knew that it, it was one of those – series that it took, I don't know, a year to film. And uh, we knew that some of the people they were filming and talking to and working with who were in hospice were going to die while they were doing it. And they were mostly young guys, you know, and um, we wanted to help them be prepared for what motion they'd be going through while they were making a, you know, a series about dying. So we taught them some things. But, <laughs> but during that time, I was uh, uh, one night. I went to meet my son, who was a student at NYU then. So he was, he was, you know, nineteen or twenty. And I told him I was doing this, and he seemed really bored. You know, <laughs> like a, a series with Bill Moyers on old people dying. And I had no interest. And in, so I said, "Okay, um, what does death mean to you?" And he said, um, "He said." AIDS, guns, and the environment. I said, hmm, we hadn't really talked about those things. <laughs> and when he said it, I realized that, yeah, I mean, death's on the, you know, it's part of our awareness no matter how old we are and how we're living. And important. We One night around the table, I put this in the book, we had a conversation about people's first awareness of death and for some it was grandparents dying but usually they just disappeared you know and it was always the children shouldn't see the body and we shouldn't talk about death and for some it was pets dying and um how in most cases nobody ever explained to them what what happened and how that would relate to them dying or their parents dying. And um, so, yeah, we, we talked about the importance of, uh, in whatever way is like natural and appropriate, like being open about it at whatever age people are. Um, yeah, we had to talk about it with my son because he's three. We lost a cat. And yeah. we just had to say, hey, Gus got, my wife came up with a good formulation. He got sick and didn't get better. So, yeah, yeah, he grasped that. Yeah. Now, now, when uh, my mom's cat just died, and he's like, "Oh, okay, so Harry's dead." Yeah, yeah, that's the first for so many children. But that reminds me when my granddaughter was around that age, she said, um, and, "And my sister had died," and I said something like, "Well, I'm getting old." And and Dahlia, your said, sister died. My sister died. Yeah, yeah, a couple of years ago. Okay, but um. Uh, and Dahlia and I said, "Well, you know, I'm getting old." And Dahlia said, "I'm like, you're not old." And I said, "What? What is old to to you?" And she said, "Old is when you get broken and you can't get fixed." <laughs> Just what you said. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
he got broken and he couldn't get fixed. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Is there anything that I should have asked you but didn't? We write a lot about grieving, which even if you are not thinking about death, comes on all of us. And um, and just there's some there's some really good thoughts about grieving in there. And um, that can be helpful to anybody. Yeah, I think that for just ordinary folks, you know, that um, we all need to bring it into our awareness. And for people working with the aging and dying, there's, you know, probably be really helpful. And do you think it's possible for ordinary folks to come to sort of a, a level of comfort with impermanence as, as it applies to everyone we love and ourselves? Yeah, well, you're right. I mean, it is the ultimate impermanence, right? Well, what do you think? You've been meditating. Yeah, I wouldn't say that I've achieved it. I think it's a process. And part of it is a natural process that I, we touched on this earlier that as you get closer to death, I think you see for many people you just naturally get more comfortable yeah. with it. But my friend Jeff Warren, who's a meditation teacher at my age, talks about trying to bring the wisdom of old age into the middle of your life. Yeah. And so I, I'm intrigued by that as, yeah. as it pertains to what you're doing. Yeah. I mean, my experience in meditation, which is the same practices that I know at least you started out doing. Still doing. I, yeah. I thought so. Um, that, you know, you get glimpses of impermanence. I mean, you, you can you can watch and feel the process of it in your own body and see it in your mind. And it becomes... You just understand it as part of the unfolding, even though, of course, you're still attached to things not changing, whatever, or changing in a way that you want them to change. Um, so, yeah, I think it's, I mean, I think that as humans, that's, that waking up has to do with recognizing both the impermanence of everything and the interconnection of everything. Yes, which, and, and and that this isn't, we don't need to put the pressure on ourselves to have it happen overnight. It's, it's, yeah. We work on it. That's it's, I think Joseph's, was it Joseph's first book? It was called A Gradual Unfolding. That's the way it happens. I mean, for some people get like an experience that, you know, some radical experience that shakes everything up and, and then they see something and they get it. But mostly it's a it's a grad, gradual unfolding that's why it's good to start now before we go uh just can you plug the book and let us know where else we can plug everything you want to plug like well, where can okay. we find your websites and anything <laughs> okay, search great. inside yourself just give us the whole thing okay um the book is called walking each other home conversations on loving and dying published by Sounds True. You can get it from them. You can get it from Amazon. It's the number one bestseller in Amazon's books on spirituality right now. Nice. And um, uh, you can... And Ram Dass's website is ramdass.org. Even if you don't buy the book and you're curious about some of, uh, of this, uh, there are lots of videos and teachings of all kinds on that site. Um, my website is mirabybush.com. And um, uh, that'll get you started. Great job. Thank you. Mirabai Bush, big thanks to her for that conversation. I really enjoyed it. I hope you did too. 
Let's do some voicemails. Here's number one. Hi, Dan. My name is Maggie, and I live in Ann Arbor, Michigan. I've been listening to your podcast for the past six months or so, and I really enjoy it. I got into a meditation practice around that same time and have been pretty consistent about doing about 10 minutes per day in the mornings. And I recently listened to the episode with you and Sam Harris, and Sam mentioned that he thought you didn't really meditate until you have gone to a meditation retreat. And since then, he's planted this kernel of doubt in my mind that what I'm doing really matters or is helpful or is real meditation. And it's kind of spoiling my meditation practice, to be honest, because I feel like I'm just uncertain what I'm getting out of it. I know you quickly refuted that on the stage when you um, commented on what he had said, but it is still just bothering me. And so I wanted to know if you had any advice on how to move past that and to help kind of reassure me that this 10 minutes a day really does make a difference in one's life. Thanks so much. I really appreciate all you've done. Bye. Okay. I'm I'm really glad you asked me this, and I'm really sorry that you're dealing with doubt because doubt not uh, doubt in the pejorative. I mean, in some contexts, doubt is really positive. I mean, I'm a journalist. Skepticism and doubt is really important. But this kind of doubt, identified by a guy known as the Buddha several millennia ago as one of the five classic hindrances to meditation, this kind of quicksand of of self-doubt, corrosive self-doubt. Am I doing this right? Is it making a difference? Is is just kryptonite. And uh, so I hate to think that uh, Sam and I may have added to it unnecessarily because it's often there for no reason whatsoever, and, and, and now you have ostensibly a reason. So let me just take it off the table entirely. Your meditation practice is excellent, and in fact, at the high end of the range of what I recommend for people, I always, you know, what I what I say to people is five to ten minutes a day would be a great habit. That's my opening gambit. You're already at the high end of that range. But what I often revert back to after saying that is if you did one minute a day daily-ish, that too would be great. Because let's recognize starting habits, it, it's incredibly hard. I say this all the time. So you are deriving many of the advertised benefits of meditation at the level you are currently doing it. And if you never increase, that is totally fine. You are doing great. Yes, meditation retreats can be super valuable, but that is in no way a diminishment of what you are doing. I mean, maybe maybe an analogy would look that, that could be useful would be this. Many of us exercise, and we do, you know, two or three, four days a week, we do 30 minutes of cardio. That's really good for us, and we should feel good that we have that kind of uh, exercise practice. Some people do Ironman or triathlons. That does not negate the value of your 30 minutes of cardio three to four, five times a week. It just That's just a different thing that other people are doing, which is also awesome, but it it is uh, it, it doesn't mean that what you're doing isn't also awesome. The other thing to say is everybody's mind is different. So if you're LeBron James and you're doing just a little bit of cardio once in a while, well, your baseline athletic ability is so high that you're probably fine. If you're me, you need to do a lot more exercise because I am, you can't see me, but I am not LeBron James, let's just say. 
so it, the same is true with the mind. Some people really need. A, I, I I am not the LeBron James of the mind. I need to do quite a bit of mental training because my baseline levels of concentration and friendliness um, are not that high. Let's just say. And yours may be. I don't. We don't know each other, Maggie, yet. But yours may be incredibly high. I don't know. And uh, you may be getting as much out of ten a day, ten minutes a day. Uh, as some people uh, get by doing a meditation retreat, just based on what your, uh, in a Buddhist context, might be called spiritual faculties already, you know, what your levels of uh, your spiritual faculties already are. In other words, what your basic, you know, your your mental wiring is. So I really don't want, I really hope that this doubt can diminish with time, if not evaporate entirely, because exploring the mind for 10 minutes a day can take you very far and you're already there in many ways. And if you want to go further at some point by going on retreat, great, but it is by no means a must. Keep going, Maggie. Don't let me and Sam get in your head. Um, let's go to the next voicemail. Hey Dan, love the show and everything you've done. My question is about thinking about thinking. During meditation, when we realize that we've been thinking without knowing that we're thinking, that magical aha moment, at that point, we're taught to compassionately and gently return to the breath. But sometimes I find that during that realization, I want to explore the thought itself. Where did it come from? What is it? Which can be helpful as long as I don't get carried away again. Should we even try to analyze a thought when we notice it? How can we responsibly approach thinking about thinking during that magical moment. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. All right, so this is just one guy's opinion. And as I've said before, I'm now we're now in the process of recruiting. I promise this is going to happen soon. <laughs> we're going to recruit actual meditation teachers to come on and answer these questions uh, instead of just sticking you with me. But here's, here's in my experience, I do not spend time thinking about thinking. I don't want to tell you you should never do that or you're somehow breaking the rules if you do. I don't I don't know. But I don't uh, – if I want to think about thinking, I'll do – I've got plenty of time to think, just you know, walking around, sitting in the back of a cab, whatever it is. However, there is a move you can make with thinking that I have found – and again, I'm just speaking based on my own experience here – that I have found to be really quite meaningful in a meditative sense, which is to look – for who is thinking? So a thought comes up, comes out of its, comes out from underneath its rock, and you just look like who's the thinker. You can do the same thing with sounds. Who's hearing this? And that sets you into a, usually off of just for like a nanosecond or two, into a really interesting space of like seeing that in some ways, you know, there's nobody home here. That I've used this phrase before that there's. And this is going to sound a little grandiose, but my experience, this is actually not a bad description of reality, which is this, all there is here is this yawning chasm of pure knowing. You can't find the owner. And that is throwing you up against a fundamental mystery of the universe. And I'm not talking like, I'm not like getting stoned and playing Dungeons and Dragons here. I'm, this is uh, me wearing a suit being a journalist guy, it is it, the mystery of consciousness is one of the fundamental mysteries 
uh, of the universe. We know that we know things. In other words, we know that a that we're aware that we've just had a thought. We know we're hearing a sound. We, you know, you're hearing my voice right now, but we don't know who is knowing it. If you listen for what or who is hearing what I'm saying right now, you won't find it. But the act of looking from a contemplative standpoint is said to be really fruitful and really interesting. So that's what I would recommend. And again, you're 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 getting your meditation advice from a you know morning television anchor here. So tell take it for whatever it's worth. And as I said, eventually we're going to have actual meditation teachers uh, giving the advice here. But my my move when when I notice I've 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 lapsed into what's been called a think hole is to is to either acknowledge you know salute the thinking and go back to to the breath or whatever my object of focus is. Or to take a moment to, say, to look for, you know, who, who's who's doing this thinking? And and even a step further, who's asking the question? Because, again, it just throws you up against this, I'm, I'm, from what I can tell, inarguable fact that there's nobody here, nothing you can claim as you or yours, which is just inexhaustibly interesting in my experience. All right. Well, thank you for both for your questions. I really appreciate it. Thank you all for listening to the show. I really mean that. I really appreciate the the fact that I have a podcast is I just can't get over it. I, I, I love it. Um, so I really appreciate that you all listen. And I want to thank the folks who are involved in putting this together. Susie Liu is working the boards today. Uh, Ryan Kessler is the primary producer for the show. Samuel Johns, uh, who is ten uh, percent happier. Uh, employee and really helps has helped me um, get my act together on on um, upping our game here generally in many specific and general ways. I want to thank him as well. So thank you uh, to all, all all the folks who work on this. And one last request: I know you hear every podcaster in the world say this, but there's a reason why we do. If you have a second to give us a rating or a review or to share us on social media, that actually really helps us with the rankings on the various podcast players. And that means more people find us, more people uh, are listening, and we, uh, have, our bosses will continue to let us do this really cool thing. Thank you again. We'll see you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery dot com slash survey if you travel for work you know to pack two suits business and swim you know with your delta sky miles business amex card buying that plane ticket for a business trip can get you closer to medallion status you know that a meeting in montana means visiting almost every national park yellowstone check because you're the chief excursion officer it's why you're a delta sky miles platinum business american express card member if you travel, you know. Terms apply. Visit go.amex slash you know business. Welcome to Pura, the most pristine, safe, climate-stable city on Earth. A haven amidst the wreckage. Here, you're safe from heat domes, superstorms, water bandits in the outer lands. There's no crime in Pura. No murder, no suicide. And best of all, there's no cost to join us. In Pura, we promise.
promised to keep you safe. They killed her! You took everything! In a world that doesn't feel so safe anymore, we're waiting for you. Here, in Pure. The Last City is a new scripted audio drama from Wondery. Enjoy The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City right now, ad-free, on Wondery Plus. Get started with your free trial at wondery.com slash plus.